And there was a partisan uprising launching that day as well, as part of the, shall we call it, the welcome party for the Red Army. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War, escapes hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And we have a really interesting one in this episode. We do. We really do. It's the story of Sub-Lieutenant Benjamin Marius Vlielander Hein of the Royal Netherlands Naval Air Service. Strong name. It's a very strong name. It's really interesting. We've done a number of people that have come from the occupied countries across to serve. There's enough information about this man to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. There's enough information to get part of a story going. But I actually found myself going through this, asking more and more questions, because there's a lot of things that are unanswered, Mm -hmm. particularly in the early days. I mean, looking back at his life, so he was born in June 1914 in the Netherlands, and he, he previously worked before the war for KLM. He didn't fly for KLM. He was an inspector. Now, I wondered if this was an instructor, but he didn't actually seem to have any sort of flying background at all. So I think he worked within an administration role within the Dutch National Airline KLM. Now, obviously, we know about the invasion of the Low Countries on the 10th of May 1940, with Germany invading France and Belgium and and the Netherlands. However, he doesn't actually list his date of joining until the 22nd of September 1940, by which time the Dutch military were very much based in the United Kingdom. Now, he joins the Royal Netherlands Naval Air Service. Now, the Naval Air Service had basically been overrun when the Germans had crossed the border. They'd been redeployed, what remained of them, down into France just before the 15th of May, which was when Dutch formally surrendered. And then very shortly afterwards, they were redeployed back to the UK. So, effectively, most of the Dutch military on the flying side are now back in the UK. Here, the personnel were formed into either... 320 squadron and for a short while 321 squadron but that was then amalgamated because of a lack of people or the personnel went to serve on the MAC ships which were the merchant aircraft carriers so the sort of grain and oil ships that were civilian and largely Dutch but had false decks put on the top and often had that mighty aircraft the swordfish on top but operated by fleet air arms and it's all very strange because they still stayed civilian owned they were still civilian crewed they were still civilian captained but you would often have serving military on there in an anti-submarine role now his service on the 22nd of September 1940 could suggest that he went into an administration role and I think it is because spoiler alert we know he gets back he ends up flying that's why he's shot down in the first place he completes 72 missions during the course of the war It's quite a lot of missions. It's not a lot of missions if you served from 1940 till 1945. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of missions if you fly, say, from 1944 until the end of the war, which is what we actually see with him. So, again, I think he might have gone on to 320 Squadron, as referenced on this website, possibly in an administrative role, because they were basically flying old Fokker seaplanes that they managed to get out of the Netherlands at the start of the war until they basically ran out of spares. And then we gave them Avaransons and Hudsons, and they went on more anti-shipping, and then eventually they went into two tactical air force in 1943 with Mitchell bombers and they started a bombing campaign that went until the end of the war but he didn't do this he signs up as I said in the 22nd December 1940 he actually goes operational as a navigator with 139 squadron on the 28th of March 1944 
So assuming he did some training, I think he did two or three years administration within a squadron, moving around with them, and then ultimately gets the opportunity to go to air crew, trains as a navigator, and then goes operational with them. It's not unusual to see ground crew and administrative crew wanting to fly and continually applying to do so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you've got this big axis power looming down that you want to protect your country as much as possible. Mm -hmm. The frontline service, the going to sea and war at sea and everything else, all the frontline action is where people feel they should be. Mm -hmm. But obviously there is so much more to military service. You need to have all the backups and everything else. So people are needed across all roles. And potentially there might be people who have gone in with the aim of doing something and don't actually get it. And that then sits with them. So the fact that it could be a medical issue at the mm -hmm. time, we have very little information for him for this period. Something there might have been holding him back, maybe academically and that he just persisted and gone to it or maybe it was an opportunity dare I say it through effectively casualties mm. you know reduction in people we saw 321 squadron was actually amalgamated into 320 because of losses because they ended up didn't have enough personnel to run two so combined it into one unit so maybe it's something along the lines of that but there's a big period of his life missing there where we only have little bits that we can pick together but effectively by March 1944 he's in 139 squadron as a navigator now 139 Jamaica squadron Excellent. Excellent. Was a Pathfinder squadron with mosquitoes. And we've covered Pathfinders before on one of our, uh, on one of our escapes. But effectively, these were people who were highly trained, very skilled, who would go in and would try and increase the efficiency of whichever bomber stream was going to bomb whichever target by accurately pinpointing with the latest equipment the target, lighting it up either with bombs or coloured flares or marking a path, hence the Pathfinders, mm -hmm. a way into a target to ensure that more ordnance was actually dropped onto the target and there was less collateral damage around it which is why he was operational because it was a very small group that would go out and do these markings particularly within that squadron now that takes us to his shoot down and the information is sparse mm. and interesting because he says I was a member of the crew of a Mosquito aircraft that took off from Upward, which is in Cambridgeshire, at 23.06 hours on the 7th of July 1944 to bomb Berlin. Owing to engine failure, we force landed at Kalmar, which is in Sweden, at 03.32 hours on the 8th of July. So I have a question. Right. So, as we always do when we're preparing for these, we do our research, we look things up. If we have our own questions, we look into it. And the report itself doesn't actually say Kalmar is in Sweden. No, it doesn't. So, my first question mark was, where is Kalmar? So, I looked it up and, of course, found that it was in Sweden. My next question after that was where it was in relation to Berlin. Mm -hmm. And looking into this, Kalmar is both north and east. So, it's further east than Berlin. So my question is this, if you're going to Berlin, you don't go farther east than it and come back to bomb it. And equally, if you're returning from Berlin, you don't go a couple of hundred miles east and then come back from Berlin. So how on earth did they end up in Kalmar? Presumably if you're going into bomb somewhere, you take the quickest possible route you can to and from in order to avoid defences, flak, fighter, squadrons that would be looking to shoot you down. So you take the quickest possible route, I assume. So how on earth did they end up in Kalmar, which is neither on the quickest possible route that I can see? Yeah, I get where you're going. I mean, there was a few things about this that you're right that, that crop up because there's a really great website about RAF Upward and they list the cause of his force landing in Sweden as engine failure, which he does as well, mm -hmm. due to flak encountered over the French coast. 
Now, that would suggest that he went via France to Berlin. Now, if he was hit by flak to the point that wouldn't necessarily immediately lead to an engine failure, but if you're going to get preemptive signs of an engine breaking down, if it's loss of oil, if it's overheating of something that's going to cause that engine to fail, it's a mechanical item that's going to keep on running. So if you're going to be relatively early on crossing the French coast and you are hit by flak that damages the aeroplane, it is a very long way to Berlin, even in July 44. And when, even further to Sweden. Even further to Sweden. One would sensibly go, do you know what, I'm going to turn around and go back because I'm one of 12 aeroplanes that were dispatched that night. My value is probably greater returning a damaged aeroplane back again. However, if you're going to Berlin, you don't go over France. No. So you might today if you're going by car, but these guys are flying. Equally, if you draw a straight line, it doesn't go over France. But you don't fly in straight lines. Obviously, if you look at the map, it's flat. And in aviation terms, we use things called great circles, which is the shortest point between two points on the sphere. So if you actually draw a line between Cambridge and Berlin on a sphere and then open it out flap on a map, it's a big curve. And it almost always, predominantly because of where we are on the planet, goes to the north. So everything bends slightly to the north from a straight line. So, for example, if you are going to Berlin... You actually pass through the top of the Netherlands. You don't go anywhere near France. So you completely miss France and Belgium and go through the top. Now, that was a very, very heavily defended area. The Germans put loads there. So what you often see is a slight dogleg where they will go up a little bit and then they'll fly and probably cross somewhere near the base of Denmark, miss Hanover and all that sort of stuff and skip into Berlin that way. So you've got to try and wiggle around a little bit. You're not going to go direct because mm. it also gives away early on German radar where you're likely to be heading if you're heading in a dead straight line. That's why you see with the Dam Busters raid, they went right out into the North Sea, down and some went down the bottom and up. But Berlin's a fair old trek for a mosquito. It was a good range on the aeroplane. The range ultimately was about 1,500 miles. But Berlin and back from upward would be about 11 or 1,200 miles. So you'd be using the majority of the range of the aeroplane to get to Berlin and back, but not going through France. Mm -hmm. So I can't see why he got damage over France. It would make sense if the report was damage over Denmark. Mm -hmm. And then Denmark, potentially, you're kind of halfway to Sweden. And I'm thinking, what's easier? Coming all the way back over the North Sea... Or continuing over a bit of Denmark, then going over a bit of the Baltic, and then going to Kalmar. But again, there's things that don't add up as we look at this, because assuming he was going to Berlin and then decided, oh, I'm going to go and crash in neutral Sweden because I'm damaged, he actually flew over 11 airfields in neutral Sweden before getting to Kalmar, because it's up a little bit. Mm. You know, it's not at the, right at the bottom. It's, in fact, it's one of the easternmost airports in Sweden. So I can see that that doesn't really make much sense. Equally, the amount of time that he was flying doesn't particularly add up because these things, economically, at a sensible height, cruised at about 325 miles an hour, something like that, in the Mosquito, which would give that range of about 1,500 miles. Well, it's only 570 miles to Berlin. And then carrying on to Kalmar, that's a total of 882 miles. So that would have taken about two and a half hours. But he's airborne for four hours. Mm -hmm. In fact, more. Four hours 25 he's airborne for. So he should have covered in that time, give or take, wind, etc., etc., about 1,400 miles, which is pretty much the entire duration of the aeroplane. Now, yeah, you get wind at altitude, and if he has got a damaged engine and it's failed, that is going to slow you down a bit, but not double the length of time you're in the air. And obviously Sweden is appealing because it's a neutral country. 
during the course of the entire war, there was something like 300 Allied aircraft either crashed or forced landed in neutral Sweden. Interestingly, the Swedes picked them all up and then they interred the aeroplanes for the rest of the war, but charged fees to the home country of whoever owned the aeroplane. And in a lot of cases, they fixed them as well. So there were certain bases that were kept for fighter storage, certain bases kept for bomber storage. And I think Malmo as well was actually a repair station. So if the thing forced landed and it was potentially repairable, they robbed bits off the other aeroplanes that they had to do it. And then, by the way, we fixed your aeroplane. Thanks. You can have it back at the end of the war. Here's your invoice. Cheeky, Mm. but certainly interesting. So I can see that if there was a need, if you weren't going to make it back home, there was certainly an appeal to crash landing in Sweden. If he picked up damage over Denmark, was it, I go to Sweden because it's safer than coming back over the North Sea? But again, the timeline doesn't work out. It would not have taken him. If he'd gone direct, Denmark, then Kalmar, you're looking at about 700 miles. So again, only a couple of hours. And you wouldn't be hanging around particularly for an extra two hours with a damaged engine. Mm -hmm. If he'd gone to Berlin and then Kalmar, it's a little bit more. It's about another 25 minutes. Again, there's two hours missing. He went flying for four and a half hours picked up damage somewhere and ended up crashing in Sweden, having missed a load of airfields on the way up. Because again, if you're damaged, you're not going to go, I'm going to fly past all of these. Admittedly, some of them are just smaller airstrips, but it said it force landed. You could put it in a field. You're safe. If your priority once you're over a neutral country is to get down safely, then that's what you do. You don't wait for the 12th airfield. You don't wait for the 12th airfield and continue to fly up the coast past all the other airfields on the way, even if it's at night. So there's a few things, as we said, that don't particularly add up here Mm. that are interesting. Yes, indeed. And while I didn't particularly know about things like Great Circle, still logically looking at a map, you can see that it isn't in a direct line or a convenient location for any of the locations that he does mention in his report. Mm -hmm. So as I said, I was asking questions to myself and looked up to see what else was going on on the evening of the 7th of July 1944. And on the 7th of July 1944, the Red Army were reaching Vilnius. They were. They were. And there was a partisan uprising launching that day as well. Mm-hmm. As part of the, shall we call it, the welcome party for the Red Army. Right, yes. Now, we certainly can't prove it from this report, but nor and nor can we prove it from any other form of report available to us without going to the National Archives. But as, I suppose my question is, is it possible that they were sent to Vilnius for any reason? Because if you look at on the map for Vilnius, Kalmar makes a lot more sense. If only because, as you said, it's the farthest east airfield in Sweden. So if you were going to Vilnius and back, Kalmar would probably actually be the first one you'd come to. It, it is absolutely the first one. Yes, this has got legs. And I looked at it as well. So yes, it was Operation Bagration, which was the Vilnius offensive that lasted from the 5th to the 13th of July 1944 and ended up with the Russians liberating in inverted commas, villainous. Mm. Obviously it stayed under their rule for quite a long time thereafter. Kalmar makes perfect sense. If you've gone to Lithuania, it is utterly the first airfield on the way back. It's also within range. So I did a quick calculation that upward to Vilnius and then back to Kalmar is approximately 1,450 miles in a mosquito with a range of 1,500 miles. But it would have meant that you would have to have deliberately set out to not come back. Not unheard of in the war. We know Mm -hmm. with the the Doolittle raid and the the B-25s on Tokyo, they set out from the carrier, bomb Tokyo, carry on, crash uh, in Manchuria. So it was done. Sweden is obviously neutral. There would have to be a very good reason for it. And if it was, it would probably only have been them because of those 12 mosquitoes that went that night, the only loss from 139 Squadron was them. And they obviously force landed in Sweden. Now, I'm not sure that the Russians would need Pathfinder help and assistance from the Royal Air Force. Mm -hmm. 
without putting too much of a broad brush across it, I don't imagine that target accuracy for the Russians at the time in liberating somewhere was particularly necessary. No, anyone who's seen modern day Warsaw will know that they didn't particularly differentiate between ancient and concrete, Correct. shall we say. Therefore, I can't see that there was much, if it was a collaboration or assistance of the Russians, although the Russians did have the assistance of the Free French Air Force, because obviously there was a, an arm of the Russian Air Force that had Free French in it. But there's no official collaboration. There's nothing I could find. In fact, there's nothing I can find at all about any RAF operations in Lithuania during the course of the Second War. So there was a Lithuanian by the name of Marcinkis who joined the Royal Air Force, having escaped Lithuania, joined the Polish Air Force, and then when that fell, come to the UK. He flew, he was shot down, he ended up in Stalingrad 3, he was in the Great Escape. He was one of the 76 that got out, one of the 73 caught, and one of the 50 that was murdered. But that's the only link I found officially, or anywhere on the internet, to the RAF and Lithuania. There is always a possibility that obviously... Operation Overlord is ongoing, the invasion of France. Russia are basically on a bit of an offensive in through Lithuania. There is a possibility that this particular crew could have been said, do you know what, actually we're going to Berlin, can you carry on and go to Lithuania, see what's going on? Admittedly it's at night, but that mm -hmm. doesn't stop photo of a constant night. I mean, even the Pathfinders had cameras linked into the bomb bays and things for that to recording what they're doing. It's not impossible for them to go and have a look at what was going on, but guys, you're going to have to crash land in Sweden on the way back. It's not impossible. It would certainly work on the times, mm -hmm. And distance. And the distance is within the range of the aeroplane. It would tie in for Kalmar being the first safe point to get to on the way back, particularly if they've had to cross the Baltic with damaged engine having taken flak or anything else from coming in, and the timing works. So the questions I have about what it was supposed to be doing, what it was declared it was doing, works on range, works in practice, does not work on times. They would have been airborne for half the time they were. They were airborne for four and a half hours for a reason, that reason could have been were they dispatched to Vilnius. If they were, it was a one-way trip with a need to crash in Sweden on the way back. That is not in the MI9 report. No. Would it need to be in the MI9 report, though, Dave? No, it wouldn't necessarily need to be. That wouldn't be information that would necessarily be pertinent to MI9 who'd be interested in the escape side of things. And we've seen in plenty of escape reports, reports that literally just say, I was captured in Crete on the 6th of June 1941 or whatever. The, the capture itself is very rarely a major part of the report. So in that sense, they're not necessarily needing to capture the information. What may have been happening here, and this is going on the assumption that our theory about Vilnius is correct, and it's very very plausible that it's not. Mm -hmm. But on the assumption that our theory about Vilnius is correct, that information would be of more interest to first MI6, but also probably naval intelligence. Admiralty. Yeah, is Admiralty. Is, exactly, yeah. yes. So, again, this is all theoretical. What may have happened is MI9 were the conduit, the vehicle through which they got Leland Hine back. Mm -hmm. They wrote up an escape report on the basis that he returned... And then that effectively would immediately flag up to MI6 that... He was back. He was back. And a lot of this does go back to also the structure of how MI9 and MI6 were set up. They were very closely linked, because of course they were looking at overseas, if mm -hmm. you like, and yeah. looking for intelligence from overseas. So they were very closely linked. It was Jimmy Langley, yeah. who was the conduit between the two. He was effectively appointed to work between the two, so it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Langley could have just automatically fired up with MI6. We know MI5 were in the distribution of this report. So this report would have been sent out to intelligence organisations internally. Mm -hmm. So if we are assuming that there is an alternative mission here, it is not unreasonable for Vleland Heim when he's writing up his escape report 
to maintain cover for want of a better description. Indeed. We then have to assume that if that was the case, he then would have been flagged up with other intelligence organisations and then would have written up a, let's call it, more accurate report Yes. for them at a later date. However, as we know, MI6 papers are habitually not released. Correct. And to all our listeners listening to this, you might think that we're going down a really interesting path here. Why are we so interested in this? Because we're looking at prisoner of war escapes. The fact is, there's a lot about this that doesn't add up, not just how he came to be in Sweden, mm -hmm. but how he also got home. Yes. This, this escape is the most different escape that I think we've ever come across and has these little things around it that are really interesting details that everything doesn't align but would align if there was something else going on, if that makes sense. It will all make sense, I think, when we go through this. What we know from the shoot-down bit, as we are always coming to be forced landed in Sweden, is that he was certainly flying for much longer than he needed to. Mm -hmm. He covered a huge amount more distance than he needed to in that time because the intention of his mission was half the length of the time that he was flying for and would have taken him nowhere near Sweden. Mm -hmm. And even if he was damaged on the way to there and decided to go to Sweden and not return home, he would have been here in half the time. There was something else going on which doesn't necessarily add up. And because of the way that he came back, it makes us think that there's an alternative. So I think really having discussed those and looked at those points and looked at the possibility, which we will reiterate, we do not have any proof for, but it's just not adding up to us mm -hmm. looking at these reports. And we look at these reports all the time. Mm -hmm. Taking his report, he says, owing to that engine failure, we force landed in Kalmar at 0332 on the 8th. I was immediately taken into custody by the Swedes and interrogated by a Swedish colonel on Kalmar Aerodrome. The next day, my pilot, which was a New Zealander, Flight Lieutenant Robbins, and I were taken to Fallon internment camp. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Yeah. So Fallon internment camp is around about 500 kilometres north of Kalmar, so a fair distance away, actually. So one of the other reasons I wanted to cover this escape was because we don't often come across interred servicemen. Yeah. So the rules were that if you were an escaped prisoner of war, if you reached a neutral country, you could, I was going to say claim asylum, seek sanctuary, secure safe passage, whatever you want to call it. If you were an escape prisoner of war, neutral countries could offer that to you. If you were shot down, crash landed or an evader, i.e. not taken prisoner, you were supposed to be interred. Is that effectively because you were a combatant up until the point of capture and in a neutral country that's not taking either sides, you're basically not going to help one or the other. If you're a combatant, then you're kept. But if you've been caught and you're escaping, you could be given assistance. Is that effectively it? Yes, probably. It seems to be one of those things that's just accepted that's what happened. But no, no one ever seems to quite explain why that was <laughs> what happened. Of course, at this point, Leland Hein has not been taken prisoner. No. He has crash-landed in Sweden and therefore has been interred at an internment camp, which was normal practice. Mm -hmm. So carrying on with his report, about 12th of July, we were taken to the air attaches office in Stockholm for further interrogation. Now that, again, suggests to me that the Swedes had question marks. Yes. Following the instruction we had received in lectures in the UK, we said that we had force-landed while on a training flight. Now those lectures are almost undoubtedly MI9. Mm-hmm. Our interrogator said that they did not believe our story. That might make two of us. Yes, yes. <laughs> Next day, when we were re-interrogated, we told them exactly what had happened. Now, the way that's written in the report, we have to assume and accept that what he's meaning is the Berlin raid. Yes. But it's also not impossible that it's, it's something else completely. Whatever else they might have been doing. Exactly. Yeah. 
Before we were sent back to Fallon, I got in touch with a friend of mine in Stockholm. As I knew that my internment was likely to be lengthy, I asked him to help me. Now again, that does make me question, why is he so desperate to get out? Now, don't get me wrong, we cover escapers. Escapers are desperate to get away. We see that all the time. They are a different breed of animal in that sense. But just because of my lingering suspicions about this entire report, I just wonder if he's making additional effort, not just to escape, but because he has perhaps additional intel that's important to the war effort. Of course. My friend said that he could provide me with civilian clothes and could help me get into Norway, where I'd be able to get in touch with an escape organisation. About 1100 hours on the 21st of June, so about two weeks after the crash landing, I left Fallon, accompanied by an unknown Norwegian guide who took me to Karlstad by train. Now that's about 225 kilometres southwest of Fallon. So in the general direction of Norway. And when he said he left the internment camp, there's nothing about how he got out. So I did look into this a little bit because I had exactly the same question. I think internment camps may be a slightly loose description. It's like an open prison. Yes, a little bit, to the point that some were even put in bed and breakfast. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And you were still receiving your service pay. Okay. So British servicemen in an internment camp in Sweden was actually in a relatively safe, well-off position. Yeah. Because, of course, they could spend their money, they could access it. And I guess they probably just had to report in every now and then say that they were there. Exactly. Possibly on a daily basis. Yeah. But... The ability to then get on a train and leave with somebody who could help you is interesting. But the fact that you're going to Norway, which is an occupied country, Mm. from a neutral country... Admittedly one that would likely to have residents more willing to help you. Correct. Because, of course, if, if he escaped from an internment camp within Sweden and then made contact with a Swede while staying in Sweden, he would just go back into the official system and therefore become an internee again. True. But my understanding of Norway, and I've done a bit of work on projects relating to Norway, Mm -hmm. is that the resistance lines were to get you into Sweden. There wasn't a return line from Norway to the UK. Indeed. And we'll come back to that. We arrived at Karlstad about seven o'clock at night and were met there by a car. I was supplied with a set of Norwegian clothes and ski boots. Now, again, I kind of questioned the ski boots and I actually look back because ski boots nowadays are these big plastic things Clunky that come, things. Yeah, come yeah. up to halfway up your calf and you can barely walk in them. But in the 1940s, they were not dissimilar to hiking boots, basically. Okay. They yeah. looked more like that. And so walking in them would not have been quite so difficult as we now think of as a ski boot. Okay, understood. About one o'clock in the morning, so this is the morning of the 22nd of July, I was put out of the car. I crossed the frontier, which consisted of a trench running through the wood at about 6 o'clock in the morning. About 11 o'clock in the morning, I ran into a German patrol. I was taken to a small hut in the forest and asked a few questions. Although I speak fluent German, I pretended not to understand. My RAF watch and cufflinks were taken from me and I was then locked in and left alone. From another hut nearby, I heard someone put through a telephone call to another patrol post, but there was no reply. So what we have here is a Dutch RAF navigator. Yep who, through one way or another, has ended up crash-landed in neutral Sweden, Mm -hmm. interred, escaped from internment, made his way to Norway, and within five hours has been captured by a German patrol. And is now a prisoner of war. Yeah, but right near the border. Right next to the border with Sweden. Yes. So already, this is a very unusual escape story. Yes. But we do have him now as a prisoner of war, according to this report. 
Returning to the report, during lunch I managed to break through a loose window. I walked west for about half an hour and then north for about four hours. My friends had given me an address to go to, but by this time I was completely lost. I therefore decided to walk east in the direction of Sweden. I did not know when I crossed the frontier on the way back, as I travelled across a lot of marshy country and the border did not appear to be marked. At about 06.45 hours on the 23rd of July, I called at a farmhouse which I found was owned by Swedes. So he has now recrossed the frontier back into Sweden. Having escaped from German custody. In Norway. The day before. Yes. So he states that he entered Swedish territory at 0600 hours on the morning of the 22nd of July. And he's in the space of 24 hours. He has been captured by a German patrol, put into custody, become a prisoner of war, escaped, made his way back towards the frontier. And by 6.45 the next morning, so 24 hours and 45 minutes after entering Norway... He is back in Sweden and has made contact with Swedish civilians at a farmhouse near the border. This time very close to the Norway border, but on the Swedish side. Okay. I then got in touch with the police. On the 24th of July, I was taken to a nearby town. I had no papers with me and when questioned, I used my own surname, but I did not use my own initial. Now, fair enough, he may be trying to distance himself from the Benjamin Marius Fleeland Hein that was interned in Fallon barely 24 hours previously. Yes. But I can't imagine with the surname of Leland Hein they're going to be fooled for too long. Correct. I said that I was a refugee from the Netherlands. The police doubted my nationality as they told me that there was a constant trickle of Germans crossing the frontier under assumed nationality. The next day, on the 25th of July, I was taken to Karlstadt, where I was imprisoned. On the evening of the 26th of July, I was interrogated again by a police official. I repeated to him the story that I had told on the previous occasion. I was asked to give an account of my activities since 1940. I said that I was unable to do this as my work had been connected with the underground movement in the Netherlands. So there's a lot of different strands to this story, none of which are adding up. Correct. Or accurate, because we know he was in London in 1940 as well. Indeed, yeah. So we certainly know that this account of him working with the underground movement in the Netherlands is not true. Mm Mm-hmm. My interrogator then said if I could not explain my movements, I should be returned to Norway. Now, in fairness, he doesn't want that to happen. No. The next day, I wrote a long, fictitious account of my work in the Netherlands, all of which was connected with the underground movement and sabotage work. As I know much of the work that has been done there, I was able to give an acceptable story. The only names that I mentioned were those of some of my friends in the Netherlands who I know had been shot. Now, that is interesting as well, Mm because how would you be party to that intelligence? Unless you're involved in the intelligence service yourself in some way. Potentially, yes. Although I suppose it's not impossible that he heard through the Dutch community in London. Potentially. So-and-so back in The Hague, which is where he was from, has been shot due to his work in resistance movement or something like that. It's not impossible that he'd heard that information about friends of a friend and so on and so forth. But yes, it's still very interesting. Yeah. So having given his version of events, accurate or otherwise... He was told that his story would be sent to the security authorities in Stockholm, so he was returned to the prison at Karlstadt and was to remain there for 14 days. And during this 14 days, he managed to get a letter out to his friends in Stockholm. A man whom he knew was then sent to the prison in Karlstadt to identify him, and two days after this, so on the 7th of August, he was taken under escort to Stockholm. He was then sent to the security authorities where he was given a visa, and after that he reported to the Dutch legation in Stockholm where he registered as a civilian refugee from the Netherlands. So again, deliberately going away from his Royal Air Force career. Mm -hmm. The next day, 
So the 8th of August now, the legation authorities, so this is the Dutch legation, received information from Fallon that he was the same man who had escaped from the internment camp on the 21st of July. On the 9th of August, he was sent to see Count Bernadotte, who holds an official position in Fallon internment camp. He was also identified by Flight Lieutenant Modelin, who worked in the air attaché's office. Following that, he then told them exactly what had taken place, and he was told that he should be re-interned. And this is the crucial part for me. I asked if I might have legal assistance as my status was now altered and I was an allied officer who had escaped from enemy hands. I'll return to that point at the end. I was then locked up for four days and during this time I gave the police a full account of my life history including the story of my crash and escape from Fallon. I was released from prison by the Swedish army authorities on the 12th of August and went to live with some acquaintances. Meanwhile, I got in touch with another friend of mine and asked him to assist me. When I returned to the security authorities to inquire what had been decided about my case, I was told I was in the hands of the foreign office. After many complications and finally on the intervention of my friend, I was given a Swedish and British passport and left Stockholm by air for the UK on the 6th of September. So he returned to the UK nearly two months after crash landing in Sweden. Now, I said I'd return to that point about his status being altered. So if we accept that he did escape internment, go to Norway, get captured, become a prisoner of war, escape again, return from Norway back to Sweden and make contact with a Swedish civilian on the right side of the border, all within 24 hours, his status would certainly be altered. Mm. He would have become an escape prisoner of war from occupied part of Europe. Which is why we're featuring, because he has effectively escaped from captivity. Exactly. On that basis, he is an escaped prisoner of war. Absolutely. However, it all seems quite convenient to me. It does, doesn't it? Yes, it seems very quick. Very, very calculated. Yes. And coupled with the question marks that are raised over the initial mission, I wonder if this entire 24-hour escapade was engineered to alter his status and then force his return back to the UK. It would make sense. And, and this is why we went down the line at the start, as mm -hmm. you say. Things don't add up at the start. If he'd been sent on a particular mission, knowing they didn't have the range to get back, and somebody in the UK has said, crash there, get away, get caught, get back out again, change your status to be escape prisoner of war, and we can get you home. It's been complicated, and he's had to call upon many people, but a two-month turnaround, effectively, mm -hmm. to get back, plus, as you say, caught after being on the run for five hours, but returning to the same country within 24 hours... It's all a bit weird, isn't it? Something definitely isn't adding up. Now, I can't prove any of our theories, and I can't disprove anything that's contained within the escape report. There is an MI9 escape report, so we have to take it at a certain degree of face value, because mm. certainly the intelligence services accept it at a certain degree of face value. Yeah. However, we know by osmosis, if nothing else, that the intelligence services also work a lot on the basis that face value is not everything that it seems. Mm-hmm. And given that everything isn't adding up, I do think there's a certain degree to which we have to question what he claims has happened, question his version of events, right from the mission right the way through to his escape, mm -hmm. capture, escape again, mm -hmm. and return to a neutral country. Perhaps if he'd been in Norway for a couple of weeks, I then, might have been a bit more accepting of the version of events. But it seems very convenient. When I go back to the initial mission and the question marks we had and whether he was actually on an intelligence mission under the guise of a bombing mission, it would then be imperative to get him back. 
Mm. An MI9 would make a very sensible, understandable conduit because if you've got him in turn, you're not going to get him back. They, in effect, couldn't lobby for him to return on the basis of intelligence. So you had to alter his status yeah. to get him back. And the best way of doing that was to turn him into a prisoner of war because you could then claim that his status is altered. He asked for legal assistance to force that through. And lo and behold, he's returned to the UK on the 6th of September. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we're putting two and two together and getting completely the wrong conclusion. But I don't think it's unreasonable to be asking a lot of questions about this. But on the face of it, he is a prisoner of war. He does escape. It is a fascinating story. Mm. And I'd love to know what the full story is beyond this, because I have no doubt whatsoever that there is more to this than meets the eye. Yeah. I just don't know what. And I mean, in fairness, you have read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of escape reports, mm -hmm. and there isn't a single one like this, is there? No, there's not. This is utterly unique and individual. Yep. So, we return to our usual question of, if anyone knows more, we would love to hear from you, because it is a fascinating story, we wanted to cover it in its own right, but there's clearly more to it than meets the eye, so if anyone is aware of any more information or any more detail about what happened, or in fact, if they can actually confirm that everything on paper that we have is 100% correct, I'd love to know more. Yeah. I would too, because unfortunately he's no longer with us. So he obviously came back, mm -hmm. is still very active in the war. He continued to fly through the rest of the war. By the end of the war, he'd flown 72 operational missions as a pathfinder. So he carried on operating. He married in 1944. He married again in 1958. He had two daughters in his second marriage, and he did return to KLM as well post-war. Again, not very clear whether it's a pilot or admin or even as a nav, because the early aeroplanes would have taken navigators. But he could have been in operational planning, etc., on the ground. So it's not impossible. He passed away of cancer in the Netherlands in March 1992, age 78. For such an interesting escape, there is very little on him, even on some of the Dutch language websites. I had an awful lot of research on that. He got the DFC for his operational work. He was also awarded post-war an award from the Dutch government, but that went to an awful lot of people. I couldn't find a citation for it, but it was an award that went to a lot of people who left the UK, continued to fight and came back as part of the liberating forces later on in the war. But an interesting individual... An interesting career that potentially has this one very short period that leaves more questions unanswered than answered. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.